Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning again to The Hound of the Baskervilles. But before we open our book, let's take some time to relax and unwind. Starting with your toes, work your way up your body, squeezing and relaxing your muscles as you go. Up your legs, in your hands, your arms, then your back and shoulders. Working your way up to your head, making sure you don't forget your face. To clear your mind, take the deepest breath you have taken all day and exhale with a lovely sigh. Wonderful. In our last episode, Dr. Mortimer explained to Holmes and Watson that he was due to collect Sir Henry Baskerville the late Sir Charles Baskerville's heir from Waterloo train station that afternoon and wanted their advice on what he should tell him. If he took him back to the Baskerville estate, would he be condemning him to the same fate as his uncle? Holmes requested he have 24 hours to think over the situation and that Dr. Mortimer bring Sir Henry with him at the same time the following morning. Watson promptly gave Holmes the solitude he needed and didn't return back to Baker Street till that evening. The following morning, Sir Henry arrived on time with Dr. Mortimer, bringing with him a letter he had received to his hotel written in newspaper clippings, stating, As you value your life or your reason, keep away from the moor. And so, that is where we pick our story back up tonight. Sherlock, having baffled the two visitors by deciphering that the note had been constructed, with clippings from an article in the Times from the previous day, and Sir Henry eager to know more. So just relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Chapter 4 continued. 
Have you read anything else in this message, Mr. Holmes? Sir Henry Baskerville inquired. There are one or two indications, and yet the utmost pains have been taken to remove all clues, said Holmes. The address, you observe, is printed in rough characters, but the Times is a paper which is seldom found in any hands but those of the highly educated. We may take it, therefore, that the letter was composed by an educated man who wished to pose as an uneducated one, and his effort to conceal his own writing suggests that the writing might be known or come to be known by you. Again, you will observe that the words are not gummed on in an accurate line, but that some are much higher than others. Life, for example, is quite out of its proper place. That may point to carelessness, or it may point to agitation and hurry upon the part of the cutter. On the whole, I incline to the latter view, since the matter was evidently important and it is unlikely that the composer of such a letter would be careless. If he were in a hurry, it opens up the interesting question why he should be in a hurry, since any letter posted up to early morning would reach Sir Henry before he would leave his hotel. Did the composer fear an interruption, and from whom? We are coming now rather into the region of guesswork, said Dr. Mortimer. Say rather into the region where we balance probabilities and choose the most likely, said Holmes. It is the scientific use of the imagination, but we have always some material basis on which to start our speculation. Now, you would call it a guess, no doubt, but I am almost certain that this address has been written in a hotel. How in the world can you say that? said he. If you examine it carefully, you will see that both the pen and the ink have given the writer trouble, said Holmes. The pen has spluttered twice in a single word, and has run dry three times in a short address, showing that there was very little ink in the bottle. Now, a private pen or ink bottle is seldom allowed to be in such a state, and the combination of the two must be quite rare. But you know the hotel ink and the hotel pen, where it is rare to get nothing else. Yes, I have very little hesitation in saying that could we examine the waste paper baskets of the hotels around Charing Cross until we found the remains of the mutilated Times leader, we could lay our hands straight upon the person who sent this singular message. And now, what's this? He was carefully examining the fool's cap upon which the words were pasted, holding it only an inch or two from his eyes. Nothing, said he, throwing it down. 
It is a blank half sheet of paper without even a watermark upon it. I think we have drawn as much as we can from this curious letter. And now, Sir Henry, has anything else of interest happened to you since you have been in London? Why, no, Mr. Holmes, said he. I think not. You have not observed anyone follow or watch you. I seem to have walked right into the thick of a dime novel, said our visitor. Why in thunder should anyone follow or watch me? We are coming to that, said Holmes. You have nothing else to report to us before we go into this matter. Well, said Sir Henry, depends on what you think worth reporting. I think anything out of the ordinary routine of life well worth reporting, Holmes replied. Sir Henry smiled. I don't know much of British life yet, for I have spent nearly all my time in the States and in Canada, but I hope that to lose one of your boots is not part of the ordinary routine of life over here. You have lost one of your boots? asked Holmes. My dear sir, said Dr. Mortimer, it is only mislaid. You will find it when you return to the hotel. What is the use of troubling Mr. Holmes with trifles of this kind? Well, he asked me for anything outside the ordinary routine, Sir Henry said. Exactly, said Holmes. However foolish the incident may seem, you have lost one of your boots, you say. Well, mislaid it, anyhow, replied he. I put them both outside my door last night, and there was only one in the morning. I could get no sense out of the chap who cleans them. The worst of it is that I only brought the pair last night in the Strand, and I never had them on. If you have never worn them, why did you put them outside to be cleaned? Holmes asked. They were tan boots and had never been varnished, he explained. That was why I put them out. Holmes nodded. Then I understand that on your arrival in London yesterday, you went out at once and brought a pair of boots. I did a good deal of shopping, Sir Henry said. Dr. Mortimer here went round with me. You see, if I am to be squire down there, I must dress the part, and it may be that I have got a little careless in my ways out west. Among other things, I bought these brown boots, gave six dollars for them, and had one stolen before I ever had them on my feet. It seems a singularly useless thing to steal, said Sherlock Holmes. I confess that I share Dr. Mortimer's belief that it will not be long before the missing boot is found. And now, gentlemen said the baronet with decision. 
It seems to me that I have spoken quite enough about the little that I know. It is time that you keep your promise and give me a full account of what we are all driving at. Your request is a very reasonable one, Holmes answered. Dr. Mortimer, I think you could not do better than to tell your story as you told it to us. Thus encouraged, our scientific friend drew his papers from his pocket and presented the whole case as he had done upon the morning before. Sir Henry Baskerville listened with the deepest attention and with an occasional exclamation of surprise. Well, I seem to have come into an inheritance with a vengeance, said he when the long narrative was finished. Of course, I have heard of the hound ever since I was in the nursery. It is the pet story of the family, though I never thought of taking it seriously before. But as to my uncle's death, well, it all seems boiling up in my head, and I can't get it clear yet. You don't seem to have quite made up your mind whether it's a case for a policeman or a clergyman. Now there's this affair of the letter to me at the hotel. I suppose that fits into its place. It seems to show that someone knows more than we do about what goes on upon the moor, said Dr. Mortimer. And also, said Holmes, that someone is not ill-disposed towards you, since they warn you of danger. Or it may be that they wish for their own purposes to scare me away, said the baronet. Well, of course, that is possible also, said Holmes. I'm very much indebted to you, Dr. Mortimer, for introducing me to a problem which presents several interesting alternatives. But the practical point which we now have to decide, Sir Henry, is whether it is or is not advisable for you to go to Baskerville Hall. Why should I not go? He asked. There seems to be danger, Holmes replied. Do you mean danger from this family fiend? Or do you mean danger from human beings? Said he. Well, Holmes answered, that is what we have to find out. Whichever it is, my answer is fixed, said Sir Henry. There is no devil in hell, Mr. Holmes, and there is no man upon earth who can prevent me from going to the home of my own people, and you may take that to be my final answer. His dark brows knitted, and his face flushed to a dusky red as he spoke. It was evident that the fiery temper of the Baskervilles was not extinct in this, their last representative. Meanwhile, said he. I have hardly had time to think over all that you have told me. It's a big thing for a man to have to understand, 
and to decide at one sitting. I should like to have a quiet hour by myself to make up my mind. Now look here, Mr. Holmes. It's half past eleven now, and I'm going back right away to my hotel. Suppose you and your friend Dr. Watson come round and lunch with us at two. I'll be able to tell you more clearly then how this thing strikes me. Holmes looked in my direction. Is that convenient to you, Watson? Perfectly, said I. Then you may expect us, said he. Shall I have a cab called? I'd prefer to walk, said Sir Henry, for this affair has flurried me, rather. I will join you in a walk with pleasure said his companion. Then we meet again at two o'clock. Au revoir and good morning. We heard the steps of our visitors descend the stair and the bang of the front door. In an instant, Holmes had changed from the languid dreamer to the man of action. Your hat and boots, Watson, quick, not a moment to lose. He rushed into his room in his dressing gown and was back again in a few seconds in a frock coat. We hurried together down the stairs and into the street. Dr. Mortimer and Baskerville were still visible about 200 yards ahead of us in the direction of Oxford Street. Shall I run on and stop them? I asked. Not for the world, my dear Watson. I'm perfectly satisfied with your company if you will tolerate mine. Our friends are wise, for it is certainly a fine morning for a walk. He quickened his pace until we had decreased the distance which divided us by about half. Then, still keeping a hundred yards behind, we followed into Oxford Street, and so down Regent Street. Once our friends had stopped and stared into a shop window, upon which Holmes did the same. An instant afterwards, he gave a little cry of satisfaction, and following the direction of his eager eyes, I saw that a handsome cab with a man inside, which had halted on the other side of the street, was now proceeding slowly onward again. There's our man, Watson. Come along, said Holmes. We'll have a good look at him if we can do no more. At that instant, I was aware of a bushy black beard and a pair of piercing eyes turned upon us through the side window of the cab. Instantly, the trap door at the top flew up. Something was screamed to the driver, and the cab flew madly off down Regent Street. Holmes looked eagerly round for another, but no empty one was in sight. Then he dashed in wild pursuit amid the stream of traffic, but the start was too great 
and already the cab was out of sight. There now, said Holmes as he emerged, panting and white with vexation from the tide of vehicles. Was ever such bad luck and such bad management too. Watson, if you were an honest man, you will record this also and set it against my successes. Who was the man? I asked. A spy? I have not an idea, said he. It was evident from what we have heard that Baskerville has been very closely shadowed by someone since he has been in town. How else could it be known so quickly that it was the Northumberland Hotel which he had chosen? If they had followed him the first day, I argued that they would follow him also the second. You may have observed that I twice strolled over to the window while Dr. Mortimer was reading his legend. Yes, I remember, I said. I was looking out for loiterers in the street, but I saw none. We are dealing with a clever man, Watson. This matter cuts very deep, and though I have not finally made up my mind whether it is a benevolent or a malevolent agency which is in touch with us, I am conscious always of power and design. When our friends left, I at once followed them in the hopes of marking down their invisible attendant. So wily was he that he had not trusted himself upon foot, but he had availed himself of a cab so that he could loiter behind or dash past them, and so escape their notice. His method had the additional advantage that if they were to take a cab, he was all ready to follow them. It has, however, one obvious disadvantage. It puts him in the power of the cabman, I said. What a pity we did not get the number. My dear Watson, clumsy as I have been, you surely do not seriously imagine that I neglected to get the number, said Holmes. Number 2704 is our man, but that is no use to us for the moment. I fail to see how you could have done more, said I. On observing the cab... I should have instantly turned and walked in the other direction, said Holmes. I should then, at my leisure, have hired a second cab and followed the first at a respectful distance, or better still, have driven to the Northumberland Hotel and waited there. When our unknown had followed Baskerville home, we should have had the opportunity of playing his own game upon himself and seeing where he made for. As it is, by an indiscreet eagerness, which was taken advantage of with extraordinary quickness and energy by our opponent, we have betrayed ourselves and lost our man. 
We had been sauntering slowly down Regent Street during this conversation, and Dr. Mortimer, with his companion, had long vanished in front of us. There is no object in our following them, said Holmes. The shadow has departed and will not return. We must see what further cards we have in our hands and play them with decision. Could you swear to that man's face within the cab? I could swear only to the beard, I said. And so could I, Holmes replied, from which I gather that, all probability, it was a false one. A clever man upon so delicate an errand has no use for a beard save to conceal his features. Come in here, Watson. He turned into one of the district messenger offices, where he was warmly greeted by the manager. Ah, Wilson, I see you have not forgotten the little case in which I had the good fortune to help you, said Holmes. No, sir, indeed I have not, said the man. You save my good name and perhaps my life. My dear fellow, you exaggerate, said Holmes. I have some recollection, Wilson, that you had among your boys a lad named Cartwright who showed some ability during the investigation. Yes, sir, are you still with us? said Wilson. Could you ring him up? asked Holmes. I should be glad to have change of this five-pound note. A lad of fourteen, with a bright, keen face, had obeyed the summons of the manager. He stood now, gazing with great reverence at the famous detective. Let me have the hotel directory, said Holmes. Now, Cartwright... There are the names of 23 hotels here, all in the immediate neighborhood of Charing Cross. Do you see? Yes, sir, said Cartwright. You will visit each of these in turn. You will begin in each case by giving the outside porter one shilling. Here are 23 shillings. He handed the boy the coins. You will tell him that you want to see the waste paper of yesterday. You will say that an important telegram has been miscarried and you're looking for it. You understand? Yes, sir, Cartwright replied. But what you are really looking for is the center page of the Times with some holes cut in it with scissors. Here is a copy of the Times. It is this page could easily recognize it, could you not? Yes, sir, the boy answered. In each case, the outside porter will send for the hall porter, to whom you will also give a shilling. Here are 23 shillings, said Holmes, handing the boy even more coins. You will then learn in possibly 20 cases out of the 23 the waste of the day before has been burned or removed. 
in the three other cases, you will be shown a heap of paper and you will look for this page of the times among it. The odds are enormously against your finding it. There are ten shillings over in the case of emergencies. Let me have a report by wire at Baker Street before evening. And now, Watson, it only remains for us to find out by wire the identity of the cabman, number 2704. And then we will drop into one of the Bond Street picture galleries and fill in the time until we are due at the hotel. Chapter 5 Three Broken Threads Sherlock Holmes had, in very remarkable degree, the power of detaching his mind at will. For two hours, the strange business in which we had been involved appeared to be forgotten, and he was entirely absorbed in the pictures of the modern Belgian masters. He would talk of nothing but art, of which he had the crudest ideas. From our leaving the gallery until we found ourselves at the Northumberland Hotel. Sir Henry Baskerville is upstairs expecting you, said the clerk. He asked me to show you up once you came. Have you any objection to my looking at your register, said Holmes. Not in the least, replied the clerk. The book showed that two names had been added after that of Baskerville. One was Theophilus Johnson and family of Newcastle. The other, Mrs. Oldmore and Maid of High Lodge, Alton. Surely that must be the same Johnson whom I used to know said Holmes to the porter. A lawyer, is he not? Grey-headed and walks with a limp? No, sir, replied the porter. This is Mr. Johnson, the coal owner, a very active gentleman, not older than yourself. Surely you are mistaken about his trade, Holmes said. No, sir, said the porter. He has used this hotel for many years, and he is very well known to us. Ah, that settles it, said Holmes. Mrs. Aldmore, too. I seem to remember the name. Excuse my curiosity, but often in calling upon one friend, one finds another. She is an invalid lady, sir, said the porter. Her husband was once mayor of Gloucester, She always comes to us when she's in town. Thank you, said Holmes. I'm afraid I cannot claim her acquaintance. We have established a most important fact by these questions, Watson, he continued in a low voice as we went upstairs together. We know now that the people who are so interested in our friend have not settled down in his hotel. That means while they are, as we have seen, very anxious to watch him, they are equally anxious that he should not see them. Now, this is a most suggestive fact. What does it suggest? 
I asked before we were interrupted. As we came round the top of the stairs, we had run up against Sir Henry Baskerville himself. His face was flushed with anger, and he held out an old and dusty boot in one of his hands. So furious was he that he was hardly articulate, and when he did speak, it was in a much broader and more western dialect than any which we had heard from him in the morning. Seems to me they are playing me for a sucker in this hotel, he said. They'll find they've started into monkey with the wrong man unless they are careful. By thunder, if that chap can't find my missing boot, there will be trouble. I can take a joke with the best, Mr. Holmes, but they've got a bit over the mark this time. Still looking for your boot? Holmes asked. Yes, sir, I mean to find it, replied Sir Henry. But surely you said it was a new brown boot, he inquired. So it was, sir, and now it's an old black one, Sir Henry answered. I only had three pairs in the world, the new brown, the old black, and the painted leathers which I am wearing. Last night they took one of my brown ones, and today they have sneaked one of the black. An agitated waiter had appeared upon the scene. Well, have you got it? No, sir, the waiter said. I have made inquiries all over the hotel, but there's no word of it. Well, either that boot comes back before sundown, or I'll see the manager and tell him that I go right straight out of this hotel, Sir Henry said. It shall be found, sir, the waiter said. I promise you that if you will have a little patience, it will be found. Mind it is, said Sir Henry for it's the last thing of mine that I'll lose in this den of thieves. Well, well, Mr. Holmes, you'll excuse my troubling you about such a trifle. Holmes shrugged. I think it's well worth troubling about. I don't attempt to explain it, Sir Henry said. It seems the very maddest strangest thing that ever happened to me. What do you make of it yourself? Well, I don't profess to understand it yet, said Holmes thoughtfully. This case of yours is very complex, Sir Henry. When taken in conjunction with your uncle's death, I'm not sure that all the 500 cases of capital importance which I have handled there is one which cuts so deep, but we hold several threads in our hands, and the odds are that one or other of them guides us to the truth. We may waste time in following the wrong one, but sooner or later, we must come upon the right. We had a pleasant luncheon in which little was said of the business which had brought us together. 
It was in the private sitting room to which we afterwards repaired that Holmes asked Baskerville what were his intentions. To go to Baskerville Hall at the end of the week, Sir Henry answered. On the whole, said Holmes, I think that your decision is a wise one. I have ample evidence that you are being dogged in London, and amid the millions of this great city, it is difficult to discover who these people are or what their object can be. If their intentions are evil, they might do you a mischief, and we should be powerless to prevent it. You did not know, Dr. Mortimer, that you were followed this morning from my house. Dr. Mortimer started violently. Followed? By whom? That, unfortunately, is what I cannot tell you, said Holmes. Have you among your neighbors or acquaintances on Dartmoor any man with a black full beard? Let me see said Mortimer thoughtfully. Why, yes, Barrymore. Sir Charles's butler is a man with a full black beard. And where is Barrymore? asked Holmes. Mortimer replied, He is in charge of the hall. We had best ascertain if he is really there, Holmes said or if by any possibility he might be in London. Give me a telegraph form. I'm writing, Is all ready for Sir Henry? That will do. Address to Mr. Barrymore, Baskerville Hall. What is the nearest telegraph office? In Grimpen? Very good. We will send a second wire to the postmaster, Grimpen, reading... Telegram to Mr. Barrymore to be delivered into his own hand. If absent, please return wire to Sir Henry Baskerville, Northumberland Hotel. That should let us know before evening whether Barrymore is at his post in Devonshire or not. That's so, said Baskerville. By the way, Dr. Mortimer, who is this Barrymore, anyhow? He is the son of the old caretaker who is dead, said the doctor. They have looked after the hall for four generations now, so as far as I know, he and his wife are as respectable a couple as any in the county. At the same time, said Baskerville, It's clear enough that so long as there are none of the family at the hall, these people might have a mighty fine home and nothing to do. That is true, said Mortimer. Did Barrymore profit at all by Sir Charles's will? asked Holmes. He and his wife had five hundred pounds each, the doctor answered. Holmes continued. Did they know that they would receive this? Yes, said Mortimer. Sir Charles was very fond of talking about the provisions of his will. Holmes looked thoughtfully at the doctor. 
That is very interesting. Oh, I hope, said Dr. Mortimer, that you do not look with suspicious eyes upon everyone who received a legacy from Sir Charles, for I also had a thousand pounds left to me. Indeed, said Holmes. And anyone else? There were many insignificant sums to individuals, said Mortimer, and a large number of public charities. The residue of £740,000 all went to Sir Henry. Holmes raised his eyebrows in surprise. I had no idea that so gigantic a sum was involved, said he. Dr. Mortimer nodded. Sir Charles had the reputation of being rich, but we did not know how very rich he was until we came to examine his securities. The total value of the estate was close on to a million. Oh dear me, said Holmes. It is a stake for which a man might well play a desperate game. And one more question, Dr. Mortimer. Supposing that anything happened to our young friend here, you will forgive the unpleasant hypotheses. Who would inherit the estate? Since Roger Baskerville, Sir Charles's younger brother, died unmarried, the estate would descend to the Desmonds, who were distant cousins, said the doctor. James Desmond is an elderly clergyman in Westmoreland. Thank you, said Holmes. These details are all of great interest. Have you met Mr. James Desmond? Yes, said Mortimer. He once came down to visit Sir Charles. He is a man of venerable appearance and saintly life. I remember that he refused to accept any settlement from Sir Charles, though he pressed it upon him. And this man of simple tastes would be the heir to Sir Charles's thousands, said Holmes. Dr. Mortimer nodded. He would be the heir to the estate, because that is entailed. He would also be the heir to the money unless it were willed otherwise by the present owner, who can, of course, do what he likes with it. Holmes looked to the baronet. And have you made your will, Sir Henry? No, Mr. Holmes, I have not, said he. I have had no time, for it was only yesterday that I learned how matters stood. But in any case, I feel that the money should go with the title and estate. That was my poor uncle's idea. How is the owner going to restore the glories of the Baskervilles if he has not the money enough to keep up the property? House, land, and dollars must go together. Quite so, said Holmes thoughtfully. Well, Sir Henry, I am of one mind with you as to the advisability of your going down to Devonshire without delay. There is only one provision which I must make. You certainly must not go alone. 
Dr. Mortimer returns with me, Sir Henry said. But Dr. Mortimer has his practice to attend to, and his house is miles away from yours, said Holmes. With all the goodwill in the world, he may be unable to help you. No, Sir Henry, you must take with you someone, a trusty man, who will be always by your side. If matters came to a crisis, I could endeavor to be present in person. But you can understand that with my extensive consulting practice, and with the constant appeals which reach me from many quarters, it is impossible for me to be absent from London for an indefinite time. At the present instant, one of the most revered names in England is being besmirched by a blackmailer, and only I can stop a disastrous scandal. You will see how impossible it is for me to go to Dartmoor. Sir Henry nodded. Whom would you recommend then? Holmes laid his hand upon my arm. If my friend would undertake it, there is no man who is better worth having at your side when you are in a tight place. No one can say more confidently than I. The proposition took me completely by surprise. But before I had time to answer, Baskerville seized me by the hand and wrung it heartily. Well, now, that's real kind of you, Dr. Watson, said he. You see how it is with me, and you know just as much about the matter as I do. If you will come down to Baskerville Hall and see me through, I'll never forget it. The promise of adventure had always a fascination for me, and I was complimented by the words of Holmes and by the eagerness with which the baronet hailed me as a companion. I will come with pleasure, said I. I do not know how I could employ my time better. And you will report very carefully to me, said Holmes. When crisis comes, as it will do, I will direct you on how you shall act. I suppose that by Saturday all might be ready. Would that suit, Dr. Watson? Sir Henry asked. Perfectly, said I. Then on Saturday, unless you hear to the contrary, we shall meet at the 10.30 train at Paddington. We had risen to depart when Baskerville gave a cry of triumph, and diving into one of the corners of the room, he drew a brown boot from under a cabinet. My missing boot, he said. May all of our difficulties vanish as easily, said Sherlock Holmes. But it is a very singular thing. Dr. Mortimer remarked. I searched this room carefully before lunch. And so did I, every inch of it. There was certainly no boot in it then, said the doctor. Sir Henry agreed. In that case, the waiter must have placed it there while we were lunching, 
The waiter was sent for, but professed to know nothing of the matter, nor could any inquiry clear it up. Another item had been added to that constant and apparently purposeless series of small mysteries which had succeeded each other so rapidly. Setting aside the whole grim story of Sir Charles's death, we had a line of inexplicable incidents, all within the limits of two days, which included the receipt of the printed letter, the black-bearded spy in the cab, the loss of the new brown boot, the loss of the old black boot, and now the return of the new brown boot. Holmes sat in silence in the cab as we drove back to Baker Street, and I knew from his drawn brows and keen face that his mind, like my own, was busy in endeavouring to frame some scheme into which all these strange and apparently disconnected episodes could be fitted. All afternoon and late into the evening, he sat lost in tobacco and thought. Just before dinner, two telegrams were handed in. The first read, Have just heard that Barrymore is at the hall. Baskerville. The second read, Visited 23 hotels as directed, but sorry to report, unable to trace cut sheet of times. Cartwright. There go two of my threads, Watson, said he. There is nothing more stimulating than a case where everything goes against you. We must cast round for another scent. We have still the cabman who drove the spy, I remarked. Exactly, said Holmes. I have wired to get his name and address from the official registry. I should not be surprised if this were an answer to my question. <laughs>